With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. You're listening to the Tennis.com podcast, and here's your host, Ed McGrogan. Hello, friends. Ed McGrogan and Steve Tigner return to your podcast. Uh, however you choose to listen to it, we are back. I, uh, fortnight's worth of hiatus, but it's, it is tough to, it's tough. I've, we've found in the past, I think, to do these pods during uh, a slam when they really age almost as soon as they're published. I think this is a good opportunity, Steve, for us to really kind of reflect on uh, the tournament as a whole. I think it's kind of a kind of a good way to do it. And I thought I think the the one thing that uh, I take away from this Wimbledon uh, is kind of kind of an uplifting Wimbledon by the end of it. It was you know by the first first week was just was made such a mess by the rain. Um, you, you didn't have Rafa playing. You had um, it, it was not really a experience that kind of befitted what you think about when you're watching Wimbledon. I thought that, um, you know, considering that the two champions ended up, uh, they had lost both of the other two Grand Slam finals coming into this event. They kind of make amends for that at Wimbledon. Um, I thought overall it was pretty, you know, pretty satisfying by the end, certainly for Serena and Andy Murray, especially. Yeah, it was definitely a, uh, uh, to, to the two weeks were completely different. You know, the first week was a disaster with rain, and everything, you know, you know that was pretty quickly forgotten. In the second week, I think it seemed to really start with Sam Querrey beating Djokovic, and that kind of that kind of you know spurred on the men's side. And um, you know, yeah, like you said, Murray and Serena finishing with wins. You know, I felt like this was a tournament where you could almost see the upside of these players. Being around for a long time, you really get to know them. Andy Murray, this was the first time we really saw him outside of the big four. He didn't have to play any of them in the final. It was just about him and how good he is as a player. You can see that. You, we had Serena, you know, really just showing again um, that she, you know, she's not really going to fade away at all. And then I also thought for two other veterans, Venus Williams and Roger Federer, they, they were also big stories. You know, they didn't win, but... But just there, where they are, and what they mean to fans now, and and and, and what they were able to do over the two weeks, good and bad, um, you know, I felt like that was a that was a great addition to the tournament, even though they didn't win it. Yeah, I, I think we have to kind of touch upon all four of those into all those individuals um, in a little more detail here, and I think what's you know maybe let's work our way backwards and and start with uh, the last player. Uh, was on court and who was a winner that was Andy Murray um, I didn't even realize until now that you mentioned it that he didn't have to play Federer, Nadal or Djokovic to win a major title I wonder when the last time 
that happened was if any major champion had didn't have to beat one of those three guys to win um hasn't been a long long time i would think and but you know irrespective of that i you know i came away from watching murray who actually did pick to win this event i did sort of think Djokovic might be due for a slip but we can get to him in a little bit but um Murray impressed me kind of from the start I, I thought as I've as I said before he wins Queens Club I think those grass events are very strong indicators they have historically been he ends up facing the same guy he faced in the final of there as to kind of hammer that point home a little bit more but um I just came away with this thinking that, you know, I felt good for Murray, who had an incredible 2-8 and eight record in slam finals. He'd obviously faced, or he'd faced only Federer and Djokovic in finals before. And I thought when he, you know, a guy who we, who I think a lot of, who some people have defended, um, because he's always straddled this imaginary line of, is he in the same caliber as Federer, Djokovic, and Dahl? I've always believed he has been. And I, I think it was good for probably a relief in a way that when when he was expected to win and when he got this great opportunity, I mean, he clearly made the most of it. Um, he had really all the answers for Raonic. Um, the match really was not ever in doubt to me. And then the big thing is, of course, he runs away with the two tiebreakers where you could certainly make the case that with, with Raonic's serve, he should have be coming into those with kind of an edge, at least putting a lot more pressure on Murray, but um, Murray really just um, locked in from the start, and I think he's in a pretty good place coming out of this. Yeah, I think the the thing to me with Murray is just his consistency was finally rewarded. You know, he's the guy who's been in so many finals, been in the last two, never got a chance to play anybody but Federer or Djokovic, so you never really thought of him as just a champion in his own right. You know, always sort of the second tier of the big four. You know, always the last of the fourth of the big four. Um, you know, there was talk about obviously this came right after he hired Yvonne Lendl, but I didn't feel like this was. And, and Murray credited Lendl, but I don't think I. I think this was more of a credit to Murray and, and his overall dominance over these guys outside of the big four. He the players he played in the last four rounds: Kyrgios, Songa, Burdich, and Raonic coming into the tournament, he'd won 24 of the 25 of 25 matches against them. So it wasn't as if this was something new um, for Murray. This was really just a sort of a validation of what he's been doing for a long time and and how good he is. And he, you know, at, at the end in his press conference, he said, "I feel like the that my best days are ahead of me," which may sound which may sound impossible at age 29, but you sort of feel like. If he, you know, whenever he can get an opportunity like this, and 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 maybe now as a as a guy who's won Wimbledon twice, he'll feel a little better about playing somebody like Djokovic in the next Wimbledon final. So, you know, like you said, I think that I think that's a you know he looks stronger than than he ever has. Yeah, and, and for you know for Murray, uh, the one thing he hasn't done, um, you know, obviously uh, aside from a couple significant titles, but. He's never been to number one in the world, and um, and you, and you kind of wonder where this may this may take him. If I mean, it would seem that he has a chance now to kind of make that push to see where it goes. And I, I think that I think that's a, a big motivator for him. I think he would, 
I think he would at some point in his career love to say that he was ranked number one in the world. Um, that'll be that. That's a long uh, ways away considering where the the rankings are. But it, when you mention Lendl too, that's that's it is uh, it is a thing where you, you thought that uh, Murray's two prior Grand Slam titles that that Lendl it seemed that he was such a, a, a big reason for that, uh, those coming to light. It was made a lot more of, and you're obviously not going to make, you're obviously, the second time around, the, the impact just by nature is going to be a little bit less, but there has to be something to what Lendl at least provides him, um, maybe not in a tactical sense, but maybe in a comfort sense. And I mean, we've all, a lot of people have written that, that Murray excelled with Lendl because he felt like he had something to prove to, to him, not to not to let him down in his corner. Um, you know, whenever whenever the cameras panned to him, it's just it, it's just classic Lendl. The, the the appearance give nothing away, and I guess you know there has to be something to him winning his first two tournaments back with him, and uh, and doing so really without you know with kind of the the game that that we saw from Murray three years ago, when it looked like he was in this position to possibly make a run at number one as well. Yeah, I think there's. I mean, there must be something to it. I think the first time he was with him, it was true that I think Murray wanted to almost not ruin Lendl's reputation in a way. He talked about that a little bit. But this time, he talked about. I don't think that's that's true anymore. That type of thing is true anymore. He did talk about this time that Lendl is just a good leader of their group. And I think he just having a guy who's a winner like that with Murray must maybe gives him a little extra confidence. I still don't think he would have lost any of these matches at Wimbledon without Lendl. But I think he's I think he's he's a good you know, he is a good guy for Murray. I think he just he gives a little extra, you know, sort of winning edge, um little you know, just a little more cockiness almost to 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 Murray and and, and you know a necessary cockiness. Yeah, uh, and I and I think one thing too for Murray that impressed me, and this also impressed me with Serena, who we should get into now, is that the two losses they that he took at in Melbourne and in Paris, uh, he did not let those losses linger and really fester into something that kind of took it, you know, made made a really negative imprint on his season, and and you could say the same for Serena as well. When Serena's losses in Melbourne and Paris, unexpected as they were, um, they were not. They didn't seem to have the uh, the singular, um, just crushing blow that we saw from her in Flushing Meadows the year before. And I think that was, uh, you know, pretty important. I think to both of them really kind of wiping the slate clean at Wimbledon, um, and Serena uh, ends up beating Kerber in uh, a really a great straight set match it was um one of the matches of the term and i thought in terms of just great shot making and you know now she uh will actually get a kind of a chance at redemption in flushing meadows this year where you know she'll be able to actually uh, have a shot at passing groff at uh, with 23 majors um after this wimbledon win i actually yeah, i also thought now um because of this one when i actually i actually don't think that uh the Margaret Court number is impossible any longer, but that's a little far ahead. But I thought it was worth uh, 
mentioning, but Serena, um, you know, I think a, a, a tournament that she probably also deserved in some ways, considering, you know, how she's uh, continued to put herself in spots this year. Yeah, at some point it seemed to just click for her in this tournament. I'm not sure exactly what happened. I don't know if she would even know. It seemed like after beating Mikhail, she had a real, you know, that was a pretty explosive match. She was she was angry in that match, smashed her racket. Um, then she was very calm. Uh, it started with, I thought, with the match against Kuznetsova. Um, she served better. I felt like both Kuznetsova and Pavlyuchenkova and Kerber all played well against Serena. And if Serena had been in a different mood, she might have, really let that bother her. She could have lost those matches, but she she kind of took their best, never really looked like she was in trouble, found a way to win, acted as if she was, you know, she was going to win and she won in all of those in straight sets. I think she did have she the way she talked about herself during the tournament, how she said mentally no one can break me. I feel like she did want to prove that, that Vinci match hadn't, you know, hadn't scarred her. Uh, despite these last two losses in the finals. And I also think maybe she found a way to not be so tense about winning about winning everything. She talked about that as well. I, I don't need to be perfect. Um, that just, you know, that doesn't, that undermines her what she needs to do. So And she, and last year at the Open, she, you know, at that point in the year, she had to be, whether it was, it wasn't her own feelings that she had to be perfect, but just by the nature of the calendar year slam, she had to be perfect to accomplish that. And I think right. that's what we saw in, in manifesting itself. And I think with her, we still see that it's just a battle of her against herself. Nobody else, you know, Muguruza, Kerber, Vika, they've all come up and, and been good, but it's still Serena kind of, she's fighting herself um, and winning that battle because she knows because she's still the best player it's a, just a matter of you know whether she can whether she can find her best tennis and that's still the mental battle and this time she this time she won that and she, yeah and she is her toughest opponent essentially is i think a way you can say that too um kerber i i think comes out of this very very nicely uh very worthy number two at the moment as well um i i i wrote i think the grass does her game uh I think it plays well to her game as well. I mean, she won on a, a lower bouncing court in um, in Melbourne as well. But uh, but Kerber's really, you know, I think proven um, an all surface player. Um, really, this year especially, um, she even did win in Stuttgart on clay too before the French. Didn't have a great result there, of course. But um, but I think she comes out of this looking pretty well, um, rebounding from what seen perhaps like okay you won the Australian Open and then kind of reverting back to the form but but this is a nice win here and I think it really it really all sets up you know when you when you account from Azarenka Muguruza as well where all four of those players games uh can translate nicely on hard courts for the remainder of the year I think it sets up a pretty nice um summer run for the WTA on on hard courts where you're you're gonna. I think all of those players are gonna get shots to, um, and with the Olympics too as well. Um, I think I think that's a pretty good uh, a, a pretty good way to settle things, I suppose. Yeah, I think Kerber showed you know in a strange way she's she's reversed herself from the past few years when she was good at smaller tournaments but not in the big ones. Now she seems to have made herself into a into a big match, big tournament player. She 
she played with I think the thing that was most notable this time was how she seemed to convince herself that her best game was to be aggressive that's never that's not really been her style in the past but she talked about that through this tournament she really played that way she played that way way against Halep and Venus and and to a certain extent against Serena I mean she was fairly even with Serena if you don't if you discount the serve I think she for some reason at the end of each set she I Kerber kind of rushed and and got tight and made a lot of errors so she didn't really believe she could win that match I don't think but yeah when you see the number two ranking next to her it doesn't seem strange anymore it doesn't seem like that's going to go away um you know we'll see again but but I, I liked her the way she I felt like she talked with a little more she was a little more assertive and confident in the way she talked about it and played you know, her, her game in this tournament I think she made she made a lot of fans you know she's she's a fun player to watch and people people can see that now yeah I think she has become sort of a fan favorite in that way you're right um so Venus and Federer you mentioned earlier and I, and I and before we even started talking I had grouped them together um for kind of the same reasons that you mentioned. They both go to the semis. Um, the next time we see them at a major, Federer will be 35. Venus um, recently turned 36. Um, you know, the, the first, you know, one of the things that comes to mind with them right away is, you know, did we just see really the last great chance and last big run of both of these two pass us by? And then the more I just think about it now, um, and, and you kind of look at it from the other, you know, the other side, and thinking to what these two actually said in in press during Wimbledon, Venus early on had a lot of sort of sage comments about where where she is, um, you know, this despite her high seating and her previous history at this event, I, I was certainly not expecting a um, a semifinal, and I think by the time she'd gotten there, we had almost expected her to win that and, and play uh, Serena in the final. Uh, for Federer, um, you know, he comes off what I think is a very tough loss to Raonic. I think we'll get into that in a little bit. But but he comes away and, and in his in his presser once he, after his loss to in the semis, you know, he it was it clearly stung him the way it all turned out, but he also said that, you know, he, he overachieved at this tournament and that was something that probably shouldn't be um, sort of overlooked and considering where he was just a few weeks earlier um, at the French, or which he didn't play, of course. So maybe what are your kind of thoughts on where, on really this tournament and perhaps you know, the, the careers at this point of, of these two all-time greats? Yeah, I don't know if Federer really believes he overachieved after losing to Ranish the way he did. But... Um... I think it was it was a great tournament in in for both of them in a way in 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 Federer's case he had a huge a pretty great win over Chilich saving match points a, a classic tiebreaker um, I think he you know that that will probably be the memory he'll try to take away from the from the tournament is if that's his we'll see if that's if that's his last great win like that um, and then the semi I felt like. Um, you know, in the past we've seen him not be able to sort of have a hiccup against other top players and and not look as confident against somebody like Djokovic. That's the way he looked in the fifth set of this match with Raonic. 
um, because of the way he lost the fourth set. You know, it's pretty inexplicable how he lost the fourth set. But it did seem. Yeah, if, if, if you had forgotten anybody, uh, Federer holds to after having after having a number of break chances against Ronald, it's really testing his serve for most of this fourth set. Um, Federer up two sets to one. He gets to five six and forty love with the tiebreaker. You know, just seconds away, obviously, and Lou drops his first service point. Double faults at forty fifteen. Double faults at forty thirty. Um, just back to back stuff you just don't see. And uh, from that point on, it was uh, a, you know a, something that Roger wants to forget clearly. But that that reminded me a little of the two thousand fourteen Wimbledon final. The way he finished against Djokovic. Suddenly at the end, he just missed four shots on his serve. I felt like there's a, there is something in about him now in these later stages of the slams that that doesn't quite believe the way he used to, you know. Doesn't you know, he knows he doesn't quite have the edge that he used to. And but this was the first time I, I saw him look that way against somebody like Raonic as opposed to somebody like Djokovic. Yeah, the, and that is, you know, I think pretty telling. I think you're right about that is and you and oftentimes when Federer um maybe took a loss to a player like this it, it was earlier in a slam too or at a or at a, a an event that was not as the stakes weren't as high you would always figure that that the pressure would inevitably shift over to um his opponent and you know the way I, the way the thing i remember or was thinking about as this match unfolded was that this to me felt like the 09 open final when federer um had really at various points seemed to be on the brink of just taking that match from Del Potro, a guy who you could maybe loosely compare to Raonic in terms of how hard they hit the ball. Uh, but it, kind of a match that I think Federer will, will rue when he, when he looks back and kind of senses a missed opportunity. Uh, I, I think, I think this match is one of those and, um, and you, and you, you really see that it, it'll be tough to it'll be tough to remember it for the Chilich win as it as much as it will be to remember it for this defeat. I, I have to say. Yeah, um, I guess you can see with Rounders the virtue of getting one of Federer's serve back when you have a big point. Chilich couldn't do that. Um, yeah. But um, you know, I think Federer. I think this tournament shows the virtue for Federer of over the years of having gone injury free. Not only the you know not only this injury keep him from it forced him to miss some terms but then you also have the the ramp up back he's never had to do that or at least in the last 10 years or so he's never had this sort of i'm coming never had to miss any really anything for injury and never had to had to go into wimbledon with you know not being physically sure of himself so you know now you so for this injury to come at this stage it's definitely unfortunate you can see where or how much he's benefited from 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 not having to do that over the years. While we're on the topic of Raonic, too, I think it's a good time to mention uh, John McEnroe, who really, I mean, on the surface alone, didn't seem to play um, much of a, of a of a coaching role. He was never, I mean, the, the time that we saw McEnroe, and this was kind of a, a controversial element of, of the tournament as well, was that McEnroe was actually was calling Raonic's matches for ESPN for the BBC, um, 
you know, he did it during the men's final here, and and it's a guy who uh, nominally is uh, is a coach on his team, and tennis has always had uh, and has really made no secrets in in a way about um, about the conflicts of interest that seem to, for whatever reason, really head to the the commentary booth most of all, and. Um, it definitely stirred a lot of reaction, I thought, from the uh, the tennis internet public community, as as anything tends to do, but especially this. Um, but it got, it definitely got more widespread attention too, because it just it just seems so odd that someone who, um, for, in whatever role McEnroe played uh, with uh, with Raonic, uh, was somehow deemed. Uh, it was deemed acceptable for him to be actually calling his match. I, actually, I think that you know, purely from a, uh, you know, a, a biased perspective, I didn't think he was actually that bad on the broadcast. I thought he gave some insight that you probably would only expect to hear from someone who was in the coaching camp of Ranich. I think he was. I think McEnroe came away probably pretty impressed overall with um, with Ranich top to bottom and um but but you know macro didn't uh take the opportunity to kind of take away from andy murray for example either or uh and and federer when he uh and when they played in the semis but you know what did you think about the whole dynamic of McEnroe being allowed to do this really yeah my first reaction was i didn't think it would be that big a deal because of the conflicts we've seen in tennis uh in the booth in general that you have people share an agent have a commenter commentator who shares an agent with a player commentating commentating on that player and it just seemed inevitable that these would happen but the McEnroe but and I agree that McEnroe did have some insight not anything earth-shattering but some insight on Raonic and he was never going to suddenly start bashing Federer or Murray in the final so I but but the more I thought about it, more I heard from other people just the fact that you knew that he's Raonic's coach was enough just that fact alone made you wonder what is he not saying you know even if there even if he wasn't holding anything back the fact that you had to wonder that was enough that he should have been kept out of the booth just just that it was so such an obvious that you're almost suspending belief for, for awkward situation yeah where you think okay what is he saying what he really thinks then you shouldn't have to you know the the audience shouldn't have to wonder about that um in, in such an obvious way so i think this was a case where I think most people at ESPN would probably agree that that was, a, and BBC now would agree that that was a mistake um, to, to have him in the booth. And, and it, it definitely, he's such a high profile guy that it became much bigger than any of the other conflicts we've seen in the past. Yeah, I mean, McEnroe is still uh, really, if you, if you want to uh, survey some people on the street and say, you know, name five tennis players, I, I you know, the biggest personalities in tennis, I think. McEnroe was still going to uh, be said there, and I think that added to it at all. I, but it also, let me just as far as his coaching goes, does show. You know, I think Raonic did improve with McEnroe there, and, and there's no way in the in the month that he was with him that he could have really taught him much. But I think it's it just shows that those that the super coach, quote unquote, super coaches, they have value just in whatever confidence they bring to the to their player, whatever extra little bit of aggression or that, that Ranish came up with just having McEnroe there. It's, it was, you know, it's the same with with Murray having Lendl to have one of these sort of icons of the game with them. It has value. 
you know. I think that in you know in a in an individual sport like tennis, where really uh, it's it's always been all on you, and you're not really answering to a teammate or to really you know, especially when you're getting into these upper reaches of the game. I mean, there are few there are few personalities that you could be associated with where I think I think this ties back to maybe where we were with Lendl and Murray years ago where you do feel like um, you have something to prove to live up to and just the fact that honestly I think at the at the base of it that someone of, of John McEnroe's caliber would want sees something in Milos Raonic and wants to work with him and sort of inherently believes in in what he's doing i think i think it's it's true that the players really do get you know they get something out of that and now we've seen that through if you go through the top 10 um you're seeing this is almost it's almost the exception if if, if there hasn't been some type of arrangement yet edberg or federer and becker and, and Djokovic, lendl you know McEnroe for a spell here Carlos Moya also working with Ron, it should be should be said too. But um, it doesn't seem like this fad or trend. It, it, it doesn't seem like a trend at all. It seems like a thing that, um, and and I guess that part of it too is is that you know these coaches, these these legends, who you probably wouldn't think and it probably don't need the money really to begin with. I mean they. I think the the thing we're overlooking is these guys clearly just want to be in the game still, in the sport. And I think that holds true for a lot of sports where it's a hard thing for uh, retired players and greats to let go. But, man, I mean, I don't know if it's just we're that close to it in tennis, but you, you can't escape how much these guys and girls don't want to leave the sport. Yeah, I think Becker, you know, the Be- Becker is and Djokovic is probably the best example of a, it's They've had an incredible record um, together. Whatever you may think Becker actually brings to it, the, the results have been great, and it's been go- it's gone on for for quite a while. So all of those relationships have have you know helped the players. Um, and yeah, we should mention Moya because Raonic really, I think he had a surge even right after he hired Moya in, in Australia uh, at the at the start of the year. So you know. That was, you know, that's also the case. And Moya seems more involved in the day to day with with Rounders than McEnroe is. Why don't we end this on uh, probably the biggest match uh, of the tournament, the biggest upset of the tournament, um, because I think it kind of maybe leads into uh, into where the rest of this year goes, um, and that centers around Novak Djokovic, who, um, as I mentioned earlier, um, I did think was possibly do for for another uh, for a defeat um, he wins the French you know I know he hasn't he didn't play any warm-ups not that's he's done that before when we he's done extremely well here but um, but it was a different um, Djokovic than we'd seen in a long long time um, I, I I have a hard time getting that second set of him and query out of my mind and just seeing Djokovic practically giving points away um, to a player who uh, before that win would have been one of the last players you would have expected to, to pull off. An <laughs> Maybe that's why Djokovic was giving those points away. Yeah, yeah I mean... Well, he could come back, you know. 
Yeah, it it was, and when honestly, when the um when it when the rain came and it ended um, their match at two sets to Love Query, I I thought of it as like kind of tennis's version of horse in basketball, where you're you're spotting your uh, lesser opponent, H O R S, and seeing if he can actually finish the deal. And I think I think we ran. Um, I think most of the polls and and things seemed to suggest I don't know if the, I don't know what the betting line was truthfully it was probably out there that it was still Djokovic's match to win really even in his perilous position um, and he ends up taking the third sets and you you say okay I mean this is the Sam Quir we all know and um, probably don't love but this is the guy that has really for his whole career just been unable to kind of break through with a signature performance like this the fourth set of that match was pretty great I thought that was um, really some of the better best uh, probably best hours worth of tennis uh, we saw of the tournament and um, you know Djokovic for once basically um, you know can't get the job done and uh, you know kudos to Sam Corey I think you have to tip your cap there yeah, that was, but you know, Quarry's served incredibly well. Um, I think played with more confidence that we've seen. I think Djokovic. I mean, what you know, he he looked like he was really struggling mentally to get himself into the match. You know, even he hinted at a, he hinted maybe at some physical problems afterwards. But I think just like you said, he threw away the second set. Even the second day, he didn't have that automatic sort of sense of fire or, or that he was really right back into this thing I think you know you look back at after he won in Indian Wells in Miami he came to Monte Carlo and had a bad tournament he couldn't really make the transition he said he was tired he needed a break this this time he wins um, in Madrid and then in Paris a big win in Paris that he'd been in you know been looking for for a decade and then he comes to Wimbledon he does this has the same sort of reaction he can't make the transition um, and sort of looks a little burnout and says he needs a rest. So I feel like that, that was that maybe that win at the French, he just, this time he couldn't bounce back quickly. No, I think it's, it's been the exception to the rule that players will win those two tournaments back to back or bounce back the way he has the last couple of years from losing late at the French to, to winning Wimbledon. That in a way that was, that's more of an anomaly than what happened this year. And he was going to lose at some point. He won four straight. Serena won four straight last year. Then she lost. He won four straight this year. Then, yeah, then he lost. Fair. That's just was going to happen. All right. And why don't we give equal time and and say, you know, not only, you know, kind of a, a great moment for Sam Query, of course, but as you and I have talked about offline a bit, um, this was a pretty nice American tournament altogether as the as the tours you know make their way back here um, even a guy you know Steve Johnson fourth round you could kind of go, Coco Vandeweghe had a very another nice Wimbledon um, I think this was another sort of pretty satisfying tournament in a way for um, for a lot of American tennis fans as well um, queries you know win being the highlight of course. Yeah, I think you could say that, ten- that American tennis is interesting at least right now. You have, you know, Madison Keys did well. Uh, Sloane Stevens had a decent run. Query Johnson Isner played a l- another epic. Um, you know, there's nobody. 
of course, the Williams sisters, can't forget that, um, and Venus sort of resurgence. Uh, it does seem like from top to bottom, especially on the women's side, but also with the men, that there's there is a sort you know there's there's more players now than there were. It's not that's not the dominant U.S. of of last century, but it's it's almost like they've caught up to sort of France and Spain and other countries that have a lot of sort of have a lot of top players have a good you know have a good quantity if not if not the top quality um, and I think that's somewhere for the U.S. to build. They had in the quarter in the round of 16 there were six matches with U.S. players that was the most of any country. I don't know how, you know I don't know if that that doesn't happen often for the U.S. Um, so I think that was a I think it was an encouraging tournament. Yeah, and we'll be seeing plenty more all those players uh, even at this week's events if uh, if you were um, just itching for more uh, you'll see uh, Steve Johnson top seed in Newport too so uh, but you'll be seeing all of those uh, players between the Olympics events leading up to the open etc um, as per usual um, let's uh, let's call it there this is a pretty good uh, pretty good rundown of the championships um, like I said I thought a pretty enjoyable tournament when it all all was said and done here. Uh, we will catch up uh, on the podcast as we make our way toward uh, the hardcore tournaments of note. So, for Steve Tegner, this is Edmund Brogan. Thank you again for listening to the Tennis.com podcast. You've been enjoying the Tennis.com podcast. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com. <laughs>